So Acts chapter 13, starting from verse 4, reading to verse 52. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Pathos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the ways, the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened... He believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose your fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of the country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles... It is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognise Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, 
he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of the God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this week we're looking at um, what is the first missionary journey to Cyprus and then off to uh, Turkey. And it's really the whole of chapter 13 almost. And... um, Just to confuse us, Paul, it's called Paul's first missionary journey, but at the beginning he's still called Saul, but it then changes during the chapter. He is with Barnabas as they set out from Antioch. It is Barnabas and Saul, and it's when they are visiting the Jewish synagogues in Salamis on Cyprus, But by the time they leave Cyprus and go on a trip north by sea to uh, southern Turkey and to Pisidian Antioch, uh, it switches to Paul and his companions, verse 13, or Paul and Barnabas, 42, 46, and 50. You might wonder, is that little detail significant? Well, we'll see. So the international church at Syria and Antioch pray Barnabas and Saul off to spread, we read, the word of God further afield. This time, they have Barnabas' cousin, John Mark, 
who they'd brought back with them from Jerusalem to assist in some unspecified way. However, given the fact that there's substantial um, evidence in early Christian writings that John Mark later accompanied Peter on his missionary tours and that he learnt from Peter, and there are clues in the Gospel. You know, Mark is thought to be the guy in the Garden of Gethsemane who runs off. Uh, that he then wrote Mark's Gospel. So he's probably here, like he would have been with Peter, providing a combination of practical and pastoral assistance whilst being, if you like, a ministry trainee. So we travel down the Orontes River from Antioch in Syria, about 10 miles, and you get to the port of Seleucia, and there they board a ship for the 100-mile journey across the Mediterranean to the eastern side of Cyprus to a place called Salamis. Now, why Cyprus? Well, why not, really? I mean, they had to start somewhere. It is probably connected with the fact that Barnabas, we read in Acts 4.36, was a Cypriot. And in those days, so long as the, 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 the going didn't get too rough, it was quicker and easier to travel by sea rather than by foot. Now, of course, neither then nor now could you get from Syria to Cyprus by foot, so they had no alternative. So Salamis is uh, what is today near Famagusta, and it had a significant Jewish community. Synagogues here is in the plural, verse 5. And they carried out their primary mission objective to proclaim the word of God, God's message to the world. And we're just told that, nothing else. And they move on. They cross the island again by foot, about 110 miles to Paphos on the western coast. And this is where we have the first of three incidents that uh, Luke chooses to record for our benefit from this first missionary journey. Now, if you're familiar with the the gospel, the way in which he starts off this two-volume work of Luke's Acts, you'll remember that he says in uh, Luke 1, 3, how he carefully investigated. And then he decided, he says, to write up an orderly, account of what eyewitnesses had told him. So like all historians, he has to be selective. He only focuses on Paul taking the word of God from Jerusalem to the centre of the known world, Rome, the capital of the empire. There's nothing out about, in Acts, about how other apostles took the gospel uh, south or east or northeast, but we know they did. And similarly, on this first tour, Luke chooses to focus on just three incidents from what was a three-year period. And they're this one in Paphos, where the probe, which is the provincial uh, capital of Cyprus, and where he evangelizes the proconsul and he confronts a sorcerer. And then he preaches in a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And as we'll look at uh, next week in chapter 14, he addresses a Gentile crowd in the open in Lystra. 
Now, one of the incidental things that we pick up as we go through chapters like this is just how versatile Paul is. Now, he would have been brought up in a very rigid background. He was a Pharisee, and he was of the strictest part of Judaism. But as a person, and as a sort of nimble, if you like, theologian and communicator of the Christian faith, he is truly a man for all seasons and situations. He seems to be equally at home with individuals or crowds, with Jews or Gentiles, with the religious or the irreligious, with the educated and the uneducated, with those who are friendly to what he has to say and those who are hostile to it, to those who are in power and those who are powerless. So let's have a look at the first of these two incidents today. Paphos, being the Roman headquarters on the island, would be the base of the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Now there's a little detail there, which uh, is in fact uh, worth uh, noting. And it indicates that Luke is a careful historian. He gets the incidental facts correct. He could have got this wrong if he didn't really know. The Roman Empire at the time had two types of provinces, senatorial ones and imperial ones, and their principal officers had different titles. Senatorial provinces had proconsuls. Imperial provinces, usually on the borders of the empire, had pro-procurators. Uh, pro so verse 7, Sergius Paulus is described by Luke as an intelligent man. Not so smart that he didn't kind of uh, give too much attention to this charlatan that we'll read about in a moment. And uh, he sent for Paul and Barnabas and, uh, because he wanted to hear the word of God. So the Christian apostle Paul has the opportunity to share with Paul, the Roman proconsul, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, had the Holy Spirit been making uh, the proconsul aware of the emptiness of his life, one that the gods of Rome or the mystery religions of the East or the philosophies of Athens couldn't fill? Or was it that being intelligent that he was drawn for the best you know, explanation to life, drawn to the monotheism that he'd seen in Judaism and their moral code, both of which seemed to maybe ring true to him. He wanted to know what we're here for. Now, while Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the word of God, his attendant Elimas also known as Bar-Jesus, certainly did not. Bar is Aramaic for son. Jesus is derived from Joshua, which means literally God saves. So he was this Elimas, son of salvation. But Paul tells us that he's a Jewish sorcerer and that he is a false prophet. Now, he felt threatened by Barnabas and Saul, because he could see that their influence was uh, growing and his was being threatened. 
he doubtless knew that he was peddling rather a load of old nonsense to this genuine seeker, Sergius Paulus. What he was peddling certainly wasn't biblical Judaism. And Paul, as he's now called, as he moves from this Jewish culture to a Gentile culture, switches his name and takes the lead from Barnabas, who is a Levite. So Elimas tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. But Paul confronts him head on, and he knows exactly what he is. He is no son of Jesus, but rather a child of the devil. And an enemy, he writes, of everything that is right, verse 10. You are full of deceit and trickery. The guy is an imposter. He's no authorised religious spokesperson. He is a con man, and he's preying on the more gullible seekers after truth, as Sergius Paulus was. This Elimas was perverting the right ways of the Lord. He was guilty of perversion. Diastropho in Greek, instead of conversion, which is epistropho in Greek. He is living in a dark world, and to let him realise that, Paul tells him that he will totally lose his sight for a while. Maybe, like Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus, Elimas will be led by the hand to someone who can explain to him the word of truth. We hope so, but we don't know. Luke doesn't record the outcome of that man's life. What we do know is that the proconsul was converted. We read, verse 12, that he saw what had happened and he believed. Why? Because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He was convinced what he'd heard was the word of God and that it was true. And this apostolic foray into the Gentile world was endorsed by God through this miraculous sign. The apostle, what God was saying here was that the apostle was his authorised spokesperson and that what he'd said was true. John Stott writes, Luke brings before his readers a dramatic power encounter in which the Holy Spirit overthrew the evil one, the apostle confounded the sorcerer, and the gospel was triumphant over the occult. Well, Sergius Paulus is the first totally Gentile convert. He had no religious background with Judaism. He is the first genuine, totally Gentile convert to Christianity that has been recorded. So the second incident which Luke focuses on is Paul and Barnabas in Pisidian Antioch from verse 13 to the end. So we travel from Paphos in western Cyprus, if you can picture it. We can all breach the 11th commandment and think that would be a rather nice trip at this time of the year to sail from western Cyprus to southern Turkey. Anyway, 
stop dreaming. Um, we are, uh, they, are, they are leaving what is Barnabas's territory in Cyprus to Perga, which is in Paul's territory. It's the area where he comes from in Asia Minor. Italia is probably where they landed, and then it's a 12-mile walk on foot to Perga inland. But there is here a bit of a setback. And that's uh, said, verse 13, is that John Mark left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why here, but later, a couple of chapters on, 1538, we learn from Luke that Paul had not been best pleased that John Mark, quote, had deserted them in Pamphylia, which is the name of the Roman province where Perga was, and had not continued with them in the work. Well, Pisidian Antioch is 100 miles further north. It was a Roman colony. If you were a Roman legionnaire, the Roman state would give you a piece of land in one of these colonies uh, for you to live off in your retirement. It was the governing and military centre for southern Turkey. Now, on the Sabbath, verse 14, they entered a synagogue and they sat down. And the order of service would have been something like this. There would be a call to prayer. Then there would have been the prayers. They would have been followed by readings from the law, the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, the rest. And uh, then there would be a Bible exposition of those readings, and the service would end with a blessing. Now, the elders may have recognised that Paul was a visiting rabbi by what he was wearing. And after the reading, they invite Paul and Barnabas to speak. Now, Luke's only got space for this summary of Paul's sermon, which is an example of how he would usually speak to a Jewish audience. Later, in chapters 15 and 17, Luke's, Luke gives further examples of how Paul would go on to address a pagan audience in Lystra and the philosophizers in Athens. To these Jews, Paul explains how God brought the Saviour to his people Israel, verse 17, as promised, verse 23. And what God had promised in Scripture he says, has now been fulfilled in Jesus. So let's try and follow Paul's outline. He starts by dealing with the Old Testament backstory, 16 to 25. And um, what he's doing is taking a brief recap of Old Testament history from the patriarchs to the monarchy, a period of about a thousand years from the days of Abraham in 2000 BC to the time of David, around 1000 BC. And Paul emphasises, as he does this kind of broad sweep, the grace of God all the way through it. This is a work that God has done. He's picked this guy Abraham and his wife Sarah, and out of them, over the course of a 1,000 years, he has created this people through whom the Saviour would come, not just for them, the Jews, but for the entire world, including us. So we have here, in this little kind of backstory, we have God is the subject of nearly every verse. He chose our fathers, people like Abraham. He made the people prosper in Egypt. He led them out of that country, verse 17. 
And verse 18, he patiently endured their bad behavior and ingratitude as they wandered around the desert for 40 years. In Canaan, verse 19, he overthrew the nations and gave their land to his people. And after they'd settled, he gave them judges, verse 20. He gave them Saul as their first king. And when he removed Saul as king, he gave them David as king, calling him a man after my own heart. And then there's a 950-year jump to the saviour he has promised, verse 23. And it's preceded by advanced notification by John the Baptist, who preached repentance. All should turn and recognise the advent of the coming Messiah, was his message. And baptism was symbolic of cleansing, getting ready for his arrival, fit to meet him. And Paul follows John the Baptist's example by directing people to Jesus. Next, we turn to the focus of Paul's sermon, 26 to 37, which is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he sums up the backstory by telling them that the Jews, the children of Abraham, and God-fearing Gentiles, that it is for them, both Jew and Gentile, physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, that that original promise in Genesis 12 which was for all nations through one nation. This was all now happening. This is a crucial event in the history of the world. It was for their salvation, so they can become right with God and adopted into his family. Now you'd think they'd lap it up, but no. Verse 27, the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. I think we can take that in both senses. There would be some people who just didn't realize who Jesus was. And there would be other people who maybe begin to realize his significance, but back off. They do not want the change that that recognition might involve. And so they reject him and they think of how they might perversely get rid of him. And so they set him up to sound as if he's a blasphemer. And then they pressurise Pilate to switch the grounds of his condemnation to sedition, claiming that he is a threat through his popularity and his talk of a kingdom to Rome. Now, Pilate may have passed the sentence, but they all, religious leaders, political leaders like Herod Antipas, and the Jerusalem mob, all played a part. And Jesus was executed, verse 28. Then 29, removed from the cross and laid in a tomb. And then verse 30, one of the best links in Scripture, the best news in Scripture is always preceded, whether it's Ephesians 2 or elsewhere, the words, but God, dramatic intervention. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, well, actually, it's a six-week period between um, his, ascent, his, his resurrection and, um, and um, the ascension, 
And he was seen, we read, by those who travelled with him from the Galilee to Jerusalem. So in other words, people who knew him very well. So there's no question of mistaken identity of this risen person. They are now his witnesses to his people. So we have here a developing pattern which we've seen in previous sermons in Acts. You killed him, God raised him, and we are witnesses. You killed him, God raised him, and we are witnesses. Now, as Paul was outlining that, he'd made reference to how the prophets in the Old Testament had predicted all this. So we have, 23, the Saviour Jesus as promised. 27, to those in Jerusalem, in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets. And 29, when they had carried out all that was written about him. And then in 30 to 33, he amplifies those statements. What God promised our fathers, he says, has been fulfilled for us. We are his, uh, the children. And by raising Jesus, Paul um, is really saying that God is vindicating what Jesus has done. And then Paul substantiates this claim by quoting from the Old Testament. So we have Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have become your father. Now Psalm 2 is what they call a messianic psalm. It's saying things about Jesus centuries before he arrives on the scene. And Paul links that with God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 14, that one of his descendants, one of David's descendants, will follow him and that he will establish the throne and the kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the writer to the Hebrews in the first chapter also applies these words to Christ, because as Messiah, Jesus inherits David's role as the representative of God's people. And next, in 34, Paul says, the fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words from Isaiah 53, verse 3. I will give you the holy and sure blessings pronounced to David. That's where the word sure means permanent, only because of the resurrection of David's son. And the third of this trio of verses is from Psalm 16, verse 10. And the contrast between David and the Holy One comes to mind. David died, was buried, and decayed, verse 36. But David's son, whom God resurrected, did not see decay, 37. All three verses related to David, from whom God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus. So David's kingdom, great as it was, was not meant to be the final or ultimate, but it served a specific purpose for its time as it anticipated the greater Messiah and Messianic kingdom to come.
And then there's the conclusion. And the choice between life and death is presented in 38 to 41. Paul brings scripture and history together and he shows that what God foretold in scripture has been fulfilled through Jesus' death and resurrection. Forgiveness of sins is now available to you because of Jesus' death and resurrection, verse 38. Through him, because he's the only mediator, he stresses that, through him, everyone who believes or who trusts in the effectiveness of Christ's death for sins and the resurrection so that we can have life is justified. In other words, declared right or righteous before God. But what about the law then as a way to be right with God? Well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we all break the law and the law condemns lawbreakers. In fact, the law was never designed as an effective atonement for sins. It's through Jesus, however, that there is justification for everybody who believes, who trusts, that what he did on the cross worked, that sin is paid for. The sinner is freed from trying to earn forgiveness, but is now given it by the grace of God. And the resurrection shows that the cross worked, that God himself approved of it as the way in which our sins could be forgiven. It's the Father's stamp of approval on the work of his Son. Paul then issues a solemn warning to those who reject the offer of forgiveness and he quotes from Habakkuk who was around at the time that the Babylonians were the big threat and he warns the people if they don't repent and turn back to God they are going to get severely walloped by the Babylonians. Jerusalem will be destroyed and like that was the fate of them then so he's warning them if you, if you, you have killed the Messiah you have scoffed about him. You have rejected his offer of forgiveness. And 40 years later, the Romans sacked Jerusalem. And finally, there's a mixed reaction to Paul's sermon. On the first Sabbath, the immediate response is very positive. The people of the synagogue, presumably the, the elders, they invited him back for the following weekend. But once the meeting had formally ended, many of the Jews, it says, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. I think the mention of the word continue may mean that some of them who heard more that day had in fact embraced the inglorious offer of God's grace, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And then the second Sabbath, a week later, we read, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. It's possibly a trifle exaggerated, but it's forgivable. Paul and Barnabas had caused quite a stir, and the word had got around, and people did flock. To find out more. However, the Jews were filled with jealousy. You know, they were threatened. Their status, their position of influence, just like Elymas the sorcerer. And so the way they handled it 
was to brief against Paul, verse 45. They had a little word with the God-fearing women of high standing, verse 50, and the leading men of the city, which presumably permitted the Jews to drive Paul and Barnabas out of town. And Paul and Barnabas shook, um, shook the dust off their feet at that place. It was their way of symbolically discharging their duty. The Jewish inhabitants had been given the opportunity to embrace the gospel. And praise God, it seems many did, but probably most declined. And so Paul said, verse 46, so we turn to the Gentiles, which had all along been the plan. Paul quotes Isaiah 49, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That was the plan back in the days of Abraham. And now it's being fulfilled. And Paul went to the synagogue first because that's where the Old Testament people of God were. And Jesus was their anticipated Messiah. He came from them and for them. They should have first chance to respond. But if they instead rejected this news, Paul had discharged his obligation and would move on to the rest of the world. And when he did, 48, Gentiles responded, we read, by honouring the word of the Lord, a way of saying that they credit it with veracity. They believed it, and we read, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who believe, in other words, ascribe it to God's grace and not to their own merit whereas those who reject the gospel are regarded as having done so deliberately. Their negative reaction showed that they clearly were unworthy of eternal life. They reject the one they'd been waiting for, for salvation. What an awful loss. But the positive reaction to the gospel meant 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This was the outcome, and a positive start to taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. May we continue that work and know the joy that comes with it. Amen. <laughs>